HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Cora Lee. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Mallory O'Donnell, a a hobbyist slash professional urban forager based in New Jersey. We discussed the politics, shifting gender roles and ethics of foraging, e.g. cutting versus pulling ramp bulbs, the viability of weeds as universally accessible and affordable food, and the over and under policing of foragers, which varies depending on gender and color of skin. This week's guest, while not a self-proclaimed forager, certainly addresses many of these same issues that Mallory and I had discussed in in her research. Natalie Doonan is a multimedia and performance artist, a writer and educator with a PhD in humanities, specializing in sensory studies, cultural geography, and performance studies, which we'll get into what all that means exactly. Her art and research specifically focus on the connections between taste and place, which is something we discuss on this show a lot. Thank you so much for joining me today, Natalie. Thank you for having me. So I want to open with them the first line of this recent article that you put out in Gastronomica, which is food is widely recognized as being integral to processes of identity formation and the mediation of boundaries between self and other, which I think um, I read it to be a really beautiful truism. Um, What has food meant for you and your identity? Yes, uh, this is a really big question. So uh, I guess I'll go back to my childhood and... uh, 
talking a little bit about my parents. My dad is a large animal veterinarian. And so before I even started going to school, I used to go to farms with him. And uh, I, I think of that as kind of my, one of at least my very early influences in the realm of food studies because uh, it gave me the opportunity to get involved at a really young age with um, understanding where our food comes from and especially thinking about animal welfare. So, for example, I used to be in charge of giving the calves what my dad called a milkshake, which is essentially uh, an oversized uh, human baby bottle, Uh, and getting involved in ways like that on the farm with him. And then uh, on my mom's side, my mom was always a big gardener, and we had a huge garden in our backyard and uh, grew various things like watermelons and yellow beans and green beans and cucumbers and zucchinis. And I was the person who was in charge of uh, harvesting all of that. So it gave me some understanding of, um, of the environment and what grows in particular environments and, and how to harvest and and prepare foods in a rudimentary way. And uh, my parents also always took us to seasonal um, food harvesting uh, practices. So, for example, every fall we would go apple picking, and in the summers we would do uh, strawberry picking, blueberry picking, and things like that. Uh, So that would be really formative experiences uh, in terms of my own identity with food. And then when I got older, uh, around my my early 20s, I started reading about corn. I got really interested in corn at the time, and I was uh, reading about how uh, cheap U.S. corn, genetically modified corn, was uh, flooding the Mexican market and forcing farmers out of business and and forcing Mexican farmers to migrate to other places like the United States looking for work and reading about the Zapatistas and their involvement in anti-globalization and uh, um, against NAFTA and things like that. And so that kind of introduced me and it opened up my eyes to this whole realm of labor around uh, food and, and connected with the food choices that we make. Uh, and then speaking of Mexico, I ended up uh, marrying a Mexican. I, I was at one point married to a Mexican and lived in Mexico for a couple of years. So I was part of a Mexican family, and uh, I just remember certain certain experiences, um, like, for example, with avocados. Uh, my family there would laugh at me the way I would open up an avocado. You know, so they, they're really tangible experiences. Uh, How would you open an avocado? <laughs> well, so I would I would slice an avocado like around the middle, and then open it in half, and and then you know make slices from the side that doesn't have the pit in it, mm-hmm. and then kind of scoop it out like that. Whereas what they would do is like peel the avocado, kind of like an orange. Huh. So, you know, just funny encounters like that in a really mundane way that uh, where, where I came face to face with this idea of how food can mediate exchanges between self and other and make, make you really aware of your own identity and, and um, cultural differences 
you know, mm-hmm. with things that you kind of take for granted. Uh, so all of those, all of those were really formative. And then um, when I moved to Montreal, I started uh, a project called the Sensorium, which is um, a series of artist-led tours and tastings in, in and around the city. And um, I continue to work on that project a little bit, and I think of it as my way of getting to know the city with other people. So um, I invite people to lead tours a, a lot of the times. And, uh, well, just to give an example, there was one where uh, two artists built, a, like, a mobile popsicle cart that was led by a bicycle, and they took us on a tour along the Lachine Canal here in Montreal, and they had made popsicles from local weeds. And so during the tour, they were handing out popsicles, and people were literally able to taste the neighborhood. Mm. Uh, and so through those experiences, I, I've been learning about the plants that grow where I live and uh, coming to know this whole other dimension of um food and and um harvesting yeah have you um heard of the artist i forgot her name it might be julie something she does uh, smell maps and it's of um newport rhode island where she grew up and so it'd be like this area and it'd be um in rings of uh, just strength of smell and so like this area has juniper mixed with s'mores mixed with um the local plants and that very much reminded me of the popsicle cart yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I did see, I think it was that map I saw a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, th- this would be another example of what I would maybe call sensory studies uh, and why I'm interested in that. There's lots of different ways of approaching sensory studies. There's uh, There are psychologists who work in sensory studies uh, looking at how vision functions, for example, Uh, There are people in marketing who work in sensory studies trying to understand, you know, uh, how how do we best um, design a product so that it feels nice in a person's hand and it makes them want to buy it. That would be considered sensory studies as well. But the way that I look at it is um, uh, more from an aesthetic perspective in, in terms of often everyday life. So when we walk around the city, uh, how can we open our our ears and our noses and our eyes and our skin to what's around us and um, learn about the places that we live in that way. Yeah, I want to go back to um, one of the first things you brought up, which was growing up um, feeding your family's cows the milkshake. Um, a few episodes ago, um, I spoke with this professor, Thomas Parker, who, uh, we, and we talked about the history of eating animals and how the more we can place them into this subject-object relationship, um, the easier it is on us to eat them. And so when you are feeding the cow so intimately and feeding the cow a milkshake, which you know is something that we eat too, how did that complicate or you know, yeah, strengthen your identity or that mediation or boundary between the cow and you? Or did you feel very similar to the cow? Mm. Uh, yeah, just just to um, clarify, that wasn't on our farm. We I never lived on a farm, but because my dad was a vet, I was able to right. go to work with him basically on other farms. So it wasn't something that I was living with, uh, you know, day day and night. Uh, and it's interesting to me because as you know, I grew up eating meat and dairy products, and I, when I was a teenager, I had friends who were vegetarians and. 
really that was the first time that I started questioning, uh, you know, where where why I was eating that meat, you know. And then at a certain point, I became pescatarian. I never went completely vegetarian. I I kept eating seafood. Um, and so, and it's something I continue to struggle with. I mean, food, these mediations that you're talking about are really, really complex. But at the same time, I don't think that by becoming, let's say, vegetarian, we re- are able to resolve the ethical issues around where our food comes from. Uh, I think basically anytime we, we eat a meal, we're making a compromise on some level right Mm -hmm. there's no perfect choice that we can make so i mean even people who are vegetarians are eating like frogs and insects that have been ground up in the the crops like wheat that they're eating right Mm -hmm. so uh, i don't know if that answers your question no no it definitely does it's i i wasn't looking for a, a right or wrong black and white Uh, answer I think what you said is very true Um, so let's go back to uh, sensory studies cultural geography and performance studies Um, could you give a short um, elevator pitch on what any of those mean and also um, where the idea of emplacement figures into all of this oh yeah that's a really complex question so well I already talked a little bit about sensory studies um, and performance studies is the study of performances which can range from anything anything from uh, you know your performance of eating breakfast in the morning uh, which could be kind of an anthropological study I suppose um, to the way that consumers purchase things in stores uh, those are you know performances as well to performances that happen in a more spectacular kind of way on stage or circus or um, those kind of performances that are more um, directed at particular audiences. Uh, so people who do performance studies analyze the, the particular perf- kind of performance that they're interested in um, as a, um, a cultural act. Uh, and then cultural geography, uh, I, I think of um, cultural geography almost like a study that's in between geography and anthropology because it you know one thing that I'm really interested in in my work is what uh, the theorist and zoologist Donna Haraway calls nature cultures so she, she treats that as a hyphenated word which indicates that you can't separate nature from culture they're very intertwined and cultural geography takes that kind of approach to geography. So we're not just looking at physical landscapes and rocks, rock formations and and that kind of thing, but we're looking at how humans humans interact with, and interact is not even the right word, but, um, you know, humans and their environments, they're they're intertwined and um, they they co-produce each other, I suppose you could say. And so that has to do with emplacement because um, uh, I, I suppose one way of explaining emplacement is that it's the idea of enacting a place, a place being an enacted. A place is not a stagnant um, feature or landscape. It's processual. It's part of, a, it's part of um, complex 
human and natural processes that are ongoing and constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. And so how you write about um, these cloudberries and how do cloudberries emplace individuals living on Quebec's lower North Shore? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I guess the first thing would be to uh, talk about where the lower North Shore is because Mm -hmm. even for people here in Quebec where I live, most people have never heard of the Lower North Shore, or in French it would be called La Basse-Côte-Nord. Uh, if you say that to people, they think you're talking about the La Basse-Côte-Nord, which is not as far north. So um, the province of Quebec borders with uh, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador um, uh, to the east, and it's 400 kilometers of coastline along the St. Lawrence, and um, there are a series of 16 very small villages ranging in population from about 100 people to, I think the largest has a population of around 1,200 people, and the communities are very unique within the province of Quebec, which is majoritarily French-speaking. These communities are uh, Anglophone primarily, and then there are some Francophone-speaking uh, commu- communities, and then there are two Innu-speaking communities, which is the First Nation in this province. Uh, and just to clarify, because we're on American radio, uh, when I say First Nations, I'm referring to uh, Indigenous populations that were here before the arrival of Europeans mm-hmm. in what we now call Canada. Um so these communities traditionally um, have been fishing communities until the early 1990s where there was a, co- a moratorium on cod fishing, which was the main uh, fish that was caught. And um, that happened not because of the small fishermen, but because of industrial fishing in the region. But it had a huge impact on people in those communities which relied on fishing uh, so they had to start turning to towards other economies. And so one of the things that they've been focusing on for the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years now is uh, wild berry uh, industry. And so um, I guess maybe you'll be asking me some questions about that after, but you were asking about how people are, are emplaced there because of the berry picking and uh, what I'm really interested in in that article that you mentioned from Gastronomica is um, the way that cloudberry picking can't be, or cloudberries can't be separated from the cultural practices that surround them. So you can't just look at the berry as a product or as a natural resource. You have to look at um, what people do with the berries and uh, how they pick them, where they go to pick them. A lot of times what they do is they take boats to go out to islands to pick them. So then boating becomes part of the culture surrounding berry picking. And um, people go out with their families, you know, from babies to elderly people. So it's a cross-generational activity, which is really interesting. And uh, a lot of times once they get out there, because the season is so short, it's maybe two weeks, uh, they they go they camp they stay out there they build fires so cooking over open fires becomes part of it and camping and and all of those things that are uh, surrounding the actual berry itself which I think is 
really important because um, if you just treat the berry as a, a natural resource, resource or an economic unit, then uh, you can easily overlook all of the um, impacts if you're look, if you're thinking about domesticating the berry, for example, uh, to start producing it on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about uh, what you mentioned before, kind of blending your language of cultural geography and performance studies and how um, our experience of, let's say we're talking about the LNS, the Lower North Shore, is processional. Do the cloudberries, or have they served as an effective substitute to the fish? Are the fishermen, have they justly re-identified as cloudberry pickers? Or how it, has that changed the culture? I think from what I've seen, it's a lot more uh, complicated than that. And, mm. uh, you know, when we're talking about the, the fishing culture, that was really, I mean, the whole, the communities were really built around fishing, right? So right. Um, I, I'm sure there were exceptions to that. But for the most part, people really identified with that fishing culture. And that, that was how they defined themselves. Uh, with berry picking, this is part of a process now of changing, and it's really, it's really mixed, right? And and just to keep in mind, I'm an outsider, um, kind of analyzing this, right? But um, I spoke with a lot of the people who who live there, and what I heard from them was, um, you know, some some people who are really on board with this e- economy. And even with the people who are who are on board, there's um, there are concerns, right? So, for example, uh, people are really interested in in picking wild berries. When you go there in August, when it's berry season, uh, you don't even really have to ask questions because everybody's talking about cloudberry picking. That that's the main wild berry that I was focusing on, or, or bay apples, as they call them on the Lower North Shore. And um, and so it's important to everybody there, I would say, of all generations. But uh, creating an economy out of it has certain implications. For example, um, a few years back in one of the communities, they tried to impose permits on locals uh, and restrict the areas in which they could pick the berries. And so it, it wasn't very much that they were charging. I don't remember exactly, but it was somewhere around $10 for the season or something like that. But it really turned people off because the idea that they would have to go and pay for a permit to pick on their own land, which is the way they see it, um, is just not right, you know? And then, and then there are... Um, and then there's the issue of... Um, sort of regularizing the work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so getting, there, there's a, a co-op that has started up in the last few years there. And what people have been used to is a situation where uh, outsiders, meaning people off the lower North Shore and other places, uh, are, are willing to pay for the berries and willing to pay quite a bit. When I talk, spoke to them a few years ago, they were going for up to $12 a pound, and uh, they would pay cash, right? It was sort of an under-the-table market. Uh, but if if the idea is that all the locals are to sell their berries to the co-op in order to keep uh, the economy local and create local jobs, uh, 
well, this means that they can't sell their berries for as much money and, uh, and they have to declare it on their income taxes and things like that. So, you know, some people are opposed to those things because they're pretty radical changes. Um, so, so there are all, all the issues around, um, around management, you know, management of the wild that become kind of contentious issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I could talk more about that, but I don't want to go on and on. <laughs> you have other questions. <laughs> no, we're going to we're going to get there. Um, no, I just feel like it. Um, it's easy to kind of treat it flippantly, right? Like it's kind of silly to po- impose a tax on what's quote unquote wild, or to regulate the wilderness. But um, on the other side, you know, there are people that are saying like maybe this ten dollar permit is allowing the cloudberry population to then serve many more generations. Um, do you think that's a valid claim? Yeah, this is another issue that's hotly debated there. So uh, in recent years, ATVs or all-terrain vehicles have become really big. Everybody on the coast owns an ATV, it seems. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are really frustrated uh, because there's so much ATV use in the cloudberry bog. So cloudberries grow in bogs generally mm-hmm. uh, or kind of marshy areas. And, um, do, well, maybe we'll get into that later, but because of the way they grow, um, it's really labor-intensive to go picking them. So it makes it a lot easier if you can just take your ATV out onto the bogs. But the problem is that that destroys the plant. Mm-hmm. And what I've been told is that once you've... Uh, crushed a plant, it won't regrow for seven years. Wow. Um, so that's a pretty big issue. And so one of the one of the um, attempts has been to uh, implement uh, paths and have the paths monitored so that you, you can still ride your ATV, but you have to stay on the path so that you won't destroy the uh, cloudberry bogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the kind of ideas that are being floated around, but then there's opposition to those ideas too, because that there are some who believe that that is impinging uh, on freedom, mm-hmm. right? Certain freedoms that people have been used to over the years. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely, there are questions around sustainability there, so, which also form part of the question of how we manage the wild, if we want to preserve the wild. And there has been talk also about domesticating the berry and there's been a lot of um, research into domesticating cloudberries which are very resistant to domestication Mm -hmm. and uh, these um, scientific experiments have been ongoing since the 1950s Uh, and one proposal is to grow you know kind of you'd have kind of like cloudberry fields the way you have cloud um, cranberry fields mm-hmm. and so it's it's um, the idea of intensely growing the berries in a smaller area so that they're easier to pick mm-hmm. uh, but even that raises the question of whether they're still wild or now are they domesticated um, but you know when you start comparing with other ideas that are being floated around uh, road building is another very contentious issue right now in that area because there's no road connecting these 16 villages that I mentioned right now. And so um, some people on the coast want to build a road. Others are very 
um, against the idea because they're afraid of how their their lifestyle will change with opening up the coast to a major highway and having a huge influx of tourists, for example, coming in. Mm. So all of that is part of it. And um, so, yeah, to go back to your initial question, it's not like there's not a hundred percent buy-in and it hasn't transformed into a community of uh, commercial cloudberry pickers by any means. (laughs) So, You seem, even this is just one instance, you seem super well-versed in the socio-political economic issues um, involved in the Cloudberry case, but um, can you talk a bit more, zoom out a bit bit about your um, artistic body of work, your multimedia installations and performances and how you address um, issues of all kinds? How do you choose your medium and which issues have you chosen to address? Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, so... One thing that I notice is that in the interdisciplinary field of food studies, there is uh, nevertheless a lack of representation from the fine arts and humanities. So you see a lot of um, social science approaches and, uh, um, you know, approaches basically from geography and anthropology. I see a lot of that. And while I do see a lot of artists who uh, work in food or use food as subject matter, I, I really can't think of any that would situate their practices within the field of food studies. So I would like to see more representation within food studies by artists and uh, people in the humanities. And in my own practice, what uh, I think is important in the way that I choose the media that I use is what I call polyvocal storytelling, meaning that when you start to use other forms, not only writing, especially scholarly writing, uh, then there are interesting technical ways in which you can uh, tell complex stories. So you don't have to reduce the story to a linear narrative, for example, and have uh, one voice succeeding the other, but you can maintain various voices, even contradictory perspectives at the same time. Uh, and just to give you an example of that that relates to this Cloudberry work that we've been talking about, um, there, there's the article that you've been referencing in Gastronomica, but I also created um, an immersive artwork uh, telling these same kind of stories from the Lower North Shore about cloudberry picking. And so what I had was um, a 16-foot dome that people could walk into, and it fits about 15 people at the same time, and you project on the surface of the dome. So there were projections that could be seen both inside and outside of the dome, and it was what I would call a storytelling project. I worked with um, two computer programmers who helped me create a voice recognition software, and the way that it worked is that you would come into the dome, and in the center of the dome there's a, a small table with a button, and you press the button, and then you're prompted 
to repeat the Innu word for cloudberry. And if you say it correctly, then it will trigger a story to play. So it will trigger the next video. And, and then there's a, you know, average 90 second video that will play with somebody talking about uh, cloud, something to do with cloudberries. And the, the videos are always triggered at random. So you never, you know, even if you listened through all the video clips, you would never hear the same succession of stories. And um, this, this kind of strategy was really inspired by um, the cultural theorist Edward Said, who had a, a technique that he called contrapuntal reading, which is a way of taking into account intertwined histories and perspectives. He was looking mainly at um, ways of paying attention to the, the story of the colonizer and the colonized at the same time. And uh, the Canadian composer Glenn Gould also had a similar method in his compositions that he called contrapuntal radio. Um, so usually the, the term contrapuntal refers to music, where an independent melody uh, plays simultaneously, two independent melodies, sorry, play simultaneously. Um, and so in Glenn Gould's recordings, he would uh, interview people in various positions, like you might have an anthropologist and a nurse who both li uh, live and work in Canada's north. And uh, he would be playing their voices, their stories at the same time. Um, so the, the main idea behind that for me is that rather than um, rather than trying to achieve some kind of uh, democracy or agreement um, between various voices in a story, it's okay and it's actually favorable to try and maintain the anti antagonism between the voices, which is actually really productive so that we can understand the tensions in a certain issue, which there always are in food studies. This is Meant to be Eaten. I'm speaking with performance artist and educator, student of sensorialness, Natalie Dunin, and we'll continue speaking on uh, contrapuntal, is that right? Contrapuntal. Contrapuntal <laughs> and the antagonist. Um, dick view of the food studies world after the break. Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. And we're back. We were just speaking about the contrapuntal approach uh, to learning about food studies. And um, yeah, so when I read your article on Cloudberries, um, I kind of sat down and thought, what would be Brooklyn or New York City or even America's branded food? What is the one product that could 
symbolize us all and I really don't think there is one um, and it really changes depending on which community you ask um, and I I, I really also thought it was really interesting that cloudberries was so easy for those communities to pick because then if we were to use that same exact formula to Brooklyn um, then it might be knotweed or mugwort which grow incredibly rampantly here and are native and indigenous but still many Brooklynites do not even know about either of these plants. So I just wanted to get your take on um, how do foods get branded for an area and what do you think about our relationships to these foods? Mm. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is, I think, true because also we're looking at, uh, on the lower North Shore, a much smaller geographic area and communities that are made up of much smaller populations than in Brooklyn or uh, other cities like Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and also because they, the area has not been developed in the same way that Brooklyn or Montreal has, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have these large swaths of land where uh, cloudberries and various other berries and Labrador, Labrador tea and uh, uh, various trees are growing, right, uh, that haven't been raised yet. Um, and the cloudberry, because it only grows in certain geographic areas like boreal forests and subarctic tundra, um, it's just not available in most places, right, which makes it a really unique food item. So it's maybe easier to brand a place around uh, that specific food there because of those factors. Whereas once you start to uh, look at, at a, a concrete place <laughs> that has eradicated a lot of its, um, you know, berries and, and other plants, then it's harder to pick one particular plant or other foodstuff, right? Mm -hmm. So how that happens, I mean, it has to do with um, economic forces, right? And um, companies going in and deciding that uh, they need a marketing campaign in order to uh, sell a particular, what they think of as product, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it would be very difficult to do that, something like that in um, Brooklyn, or in Montreal, I think, or other big cities. So we keep referring to this one article. I'm just going to read the title. Um, it's Wild Cuisine and Canadianness, Creeping Rootstocks and Subterranean Struggle. And so I just wanted to break that down uh, word by word. And could you define or why wild cuisine? Yeah, wild cuisine, because, uh, well, I'm, I'm working on a project right now. It's just a book project about... Um, wild food in Canada and when you read the literature on Canadian cuisine I mean, this is an ongoing debate in Canada is trying to define what is our national cuisine mm -hmm. and it's really hard to do that right For, because of some of the things that you mentioned and you, you talked about how cuisine in the U.S. is regional right Mm -hmm. And this is what a lot of authors say about Canadian cuisine as well, because it varies so much depending on where you are and what the landscape is like in in that particular place, since we live in such a big country. Uh, but there are four characteristics of Canadian cuisine that come up again and again in the literature. 
And one of those is that it's wild. The, the others are that it's multicultural and it's local and it's seasonal, right? But uh, in that article that you're talking about, I was interested in focusing on that one element of, of wildness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, so with Mallory's episode, uh, we talked about how trendy it is as people that live in cities um, to go and forage our own food because of said wildness. It's this weird spiritual fetishization of eating weeds and finding our own food. But how is that stereotype felt as a Canadian? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really problematic. And um that's not to say I think we should eradicate the word or, or anything like that, but I think um, I, I listened to that episode uh, with Mallory, and one point that he made that I thought was really interesting is when he was talking about uh, picking fruits mm-hmm. in cities, and he was talking about the case where you've got um, private fruiting trees that are hanging over a sidewalk or something like that and uh, a lot of people um, will take those fruits and think you know it's fine the if they're falling on the road then the people who own the tree don't care anyway but he raised this issue of responsibility and said that um, in his in his view it would be important to approach the owner of the property and ask them just to make sure it's okay and the reason I thought that was really interesting is that um, we often don't think about the question of responsibility, and that's, uh, for me, what's important in the idea of wild cuisine, okay? So, because if we really start to dig into that question of what makes a food wild, uh, then we can't avoid thinking about the land, right? The land that it comes from, and that's what he's doing when he's ta- saying, well, we have a responsibility to ask permission, Right and ask whose land is it. So when we're talking about um, wild foods, the reason it's easier to see this as an issue on the Lower North Shore is because the population is so much smaller and you have Anglophone and Francophone populations literally living right next to, uh, in one case, an Innu reserve and in another case, an Innu population, right? So they come face-to-face with each other, whereas in bigger cities... Uh, like Montreal, we we can easily ignore the fact that we're actually on unceded Indigenous land, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Montreal, it's uh, called Jojage, and uh, it was traditionally uh, meeting and trading grounds, and primarily of the Ganyangahaga nation. Uh, but all across what we now call North America, it's Turtle Island, right? And so if we're talking about wild foods, I think, and your your episode is called uh, The Politics of Picking Weeds. So I think this is important here is asking about um, whose land it is and what does it mean to be picking plants on this land. And it's a question that's relevant with other foods too, right? But... Um, in the case of wild foods, the, the, it, there's this whole narrative about the wild, which is part of a frontier ideology, which claims the land as empty. It's this Latin idea of terra nullius. And so when the British and the French came here, there, there's really this um, 
this underlying philosophy, which I always think of as coming from the British philosopher John Locke, where the idea is that the value of goods is based on their ability to generate income. Mm -hmm. So to have value, land has to be mixed with labor. And there's a really great book by the geographer Cole Harris where he writes about um, how when the British came to, in this case, British Columbia, any garden that wasn't tended and arranged in the manner of the English was considered, uh, and this this uh, is a quote, uh, uh, an inadequate measure of property. Mm-hmm. And so this term wilderness in the wild was used to encourage immigration by Western Europeans, you know, creating this idea that the land is empty and available. Um, and, so, and I should say, just as a side note, that it's, it was never true that uh, First Nations people were uh, leaving the land barren. The land was very much used, and agriculture was very much practiced. It's where we talk about um, the three sisters, right? Corn, beans, and squash. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that when we talk about foraging and uh, marketing foods as wild, there's a danger in perpetuating the same colonial mythology uh, to conquer the land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something it's something important, I think, to keep in mind. Here in Quebec in particular, we have an ongoing debate about separation, which is important, you know, as a, in, in terms of preservation of French culture and heritage. But actually, uh, it's largely ignored that, in fact, this land was stolen from First Nations by the French and the British. So... Um, yeah, the the politics of picking weeds is very much um, a part of all of that. Mm-hmm. I think this is actually a perfect um, question to leave you on. Um, so is there such thing as wilderness management? Um, do you see a future for where this could be viable or even is it useful at all? Uh, wilderness management? Right. Yeah, I think... Uh, just to return to, we'll just stick with the same example of the Lower North Shore. Um, I think that I think that the efforts that are being made there are, um, in a lot of ways, really fantastic. You know, the idea of um, creating an economy that will support local people uh, and that will provide alternatives to some of the some of the other ideas, like you know, creating a nuclear waste site as a way of generating income. It, it, it offers um, the possibility of creating a sustainable economy, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so in that case, man- wilderness management is actually as ironic as it is. That, that's the whole point. Wil- the idea of wilderness in the wild is always ironic in our current day and age. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, wilderness management is crucial in order to tackle some of the problems we talked about, including ATVs, for instance, or providing an alternative to building highways or hydro development, further hydro development, I should say. Um, so, yes, it's something to be, to be pursued. And um, there, you had another episode on terroir, which was really interesting because um, your guest talked about terroir as... Um, I had the impression that he was really thinking about it as uh, 
in terms of like the physical landscape producing the taste of place, whereas another aspect of terroir has to do with um, the cultural practices that, uh, you know, the methods of, of planting and harvesting and so on mm-hmm. that imbue certain tastes to a product or ways of preparing that food. And um, I think that using the term terroir is maybe an interesting alternative to branding a product as wild. And that's something that uh, those responsible for the co-op I mentioned on the Lower North Shore have been doing recently is using this um, terminology of terroir, uh, which I think has really interesting potential because it in itself as a term implicates those um, histories with the land that I was talking about before. And so all of that politics becomes easier to talk about. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Natalie Dunin, multimedia and performance artist, writer and educator with a PhD in humanities. I'm your host, Coralie, and this is Meant to Beaten. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.